please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, where we will take as our text this morning verses 12 through 19. 1 Corinthians, chapter 15. We begin our reading at the 12th verse. Hear this as it truly is the very word of God. Now if Christ be preached that he hath been raised from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, neither hath Christ been raised. And if Christ hath not been raised, then is our preaching vain. Your faith also is vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, neither hath Christ been raised. And if Christ hath not been raised, your faith is vain. Ye are yet in your sins. Then they also that are fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have only hoped in Christ in this life, we are of all men most pitiable. Thus far the reading of God's Word. The coming of Easter always provokes some reflection in me as to the meaning, the sincerity, the very significance of what we are doing by coming every Sunday, but especially on this Easter Sunday, to worship God. If you stop and think about it, we're a bizarre lot of people, those of us who are Christians. We have a strange way of thinking, strange way of acting, that don't fit into the run-of-the-mill order of life and other people pursue it. It's a beautiful day out there today. The sun is shining. We're sitting inside here. We're all dressed up. We don't have to do that thing. We could be sleeping in. We could be enjoying the natural world. We could be having a picnic. We could be doing all sorts of self-serving, pleasant, and convenient things. But we come here to sing songs, to pray to a, an unseen God, to engage in certain ritual acts, and we think there's some substance to that. Why? Well, you know just from the way that I'm building up to this, don't you, what the answer is? We do this because, not just today on Easter, but every Lord's Day as we celebrate the resurrection, we do these things because we think God, the maker of heaven and earth, the transcendent Lord over all, has broken into history, has come into this world, has done something not simply as some kind of a carnival act, but has done something of great spiritual significance in dying for our sins and rising from the dead. We believe that this is all of our life and all of our hope. We believe that without this, we are nothing. And so this morning I want to speak to you about the indispensable Christ's resurrection. I want to, to play that out for you. I want to dwell on that for a few moments as we look at God's Word. I want to remind you how this Easter message, as glorious as it is, is not to be restricted to what we do on one particular day of the church calendar. Indeed, it's not to be restricted simply to those Lord's days on which we come and worship Him. 
that this Easter message is all of our life and our hope, and that without it, you have a Christianity without Christ. You have a religion devoid of meaning. You have a faith that is ridiculous, not only in the sight of men, but is objectively and truly ridiculous. And you are, of all men, most pitiable to go through all these ritual acts, to believe all these things. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, preposterous. But it's not preposterous as we believe. According to the teaching of the Scriptures and the eyewitness accounts of the apostles, he did indeed rise from the dead bodily. That very body that was crucified on Friday was raised alive and glorified three days later. And that on that one truth rests all of our hope and all the meaning of Christianity. You know, some versions of Christianity have tried to dispense with the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. There are those who called themselves Christians. There have been throughout history those who have called themselves Christians. There are today those who call themselves Christians who have attempted to dispense with the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Once you do that, what does Easter turn into? Well, Easter turns out to be the Christian expression of the spring festival, nothing more. It, there are spring festivals in just about every religion of man. There are the rites of spring that are celebrated. Romantic poets look to this sort of thing. Eastern religions look at it. Even some of the more bizarre blood cults in history have all made something of the fact that spring has come. There is a sense of new life in the air. And sadly, many of those Christians have read the message of God's Word, the unique and holy good news of Jesus Christ, to just that sort of thing, the Christian Western version of the Spring Festival. Let me tell you about some of these versions of Christianity that have dispensed with the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. I have three kinds in mind, if you're taking notes this morning. I think first of cultural Christianity, and secondly, of naturalistic Christianity, and thirdly, of revisionist Christianity. I want to look at each one of those for a moment or two. First of all, cultural Christianity. There are those who say they are Christians for no other reason than that they are Americans, right? If, uh, if they were to be given a survey, and one of the things they had to put down is not just their birth date and where they worked and how many children they had or what have you, but they were to list their religion, there are many people who would say, well, I'm not, I'm not Buddhist, I'm, I'm not Hindu, I, uh, I, I guess I'm Christian. And, and it's just that kind of oblivious approach to the teaching of Christianity, that kind of cultural categorization of themselves, and I think when I speak of cultural Christianity, the idea that, well, I'm in the midst of a Christian setting, I have the benefit of a Christian tradition, and so I guess I'm a Christian. You know, the kind of thinking in other places that we would rather laugh off, the thinking that says, well, if I sit in an oven, I must be a cookie. If I'm in the United States, I must be a Christian. And it is just that silly. Ask such people who say they are Christians, who was Jesus Christ? What did he claim about himself? What was the significance of his work? Why did he die? Do you believe his miracles? Who is his father? What's the relationship of Christ to the Spirit? What is the future for yourself and for history? And they would give you a blank stare. Well, I, I don't know. 
cultural Christianity dispenses with the resurrection, you see, because cultural Christianity dispenses with the message altogether of the Bible. The Bible's not important. The Bible's just a token, a marker, a good luck charm, maybe. A dust-gathering traditional book that everyone has in their home if they're a Western uh, Christian or American. They're cultural. And thus, the resurrection means nothing. Secondly, there is naturalistic Christianity. That is, a Christianity devoid of the miraculous. A Christianity that hopes to win the approval of the scientific and the worldly wise by reducing the message of God's Word to proportions that are acceptable to anybody who thinks about it. To just any man in his natural reasoning. Naturalistic Christianity. Obviously, we know miracles don't happen, people will say. I've never seen a miracle. I debated an atheist last year at the university who told us, it was, I think, evident to all, that he wouldn't believe in God unless his podium rose up 10 feet off the ground or something like that and stayed there for three minutes or whatever his demand of God was at that point. But, of course, he knew there would be no such miracles. Leo Tolstoy is uh, famous for his rereading of the Testament and neutralizing of the miracles that are found there. One of the miracles we read of in the New Testament is how Jesus took um, a couple of loaves and fishes, just a very small little boy's lunch, and multiplied it so that it fed 5,000 people. Tolstoy, not believing in the miraculous, that a transcendent creator God could enter into history and control the events and the objects of this natural world, said, well, obviously what that means is the little boy was hiding his lunch and everyone else was hiding his lunch because everyone was selfish and was afraid they, they couldn't share because if they did, they wouldn't have lunch enough for themselves. And so when this little boy took out his lunch and shared with others, that set an example that everybody else looked at and thought that was just wonderful, and then they stopped hiding their lunches and they shared with everybody. And there goes the miracle, and there's our explanation of how Christ fed the 5,000. And everything else, you see, can be reduced one way or another down to naturalistic proportions. No miracles. That's what I mean by naturalistic And two examples come to my mind this morning. First is the Christianity of the 18th century in particular that was called deism. Uh, that is popularized in this country by um, Thomas Paine, by men who said Christianity is nothing more but the republication of the truths of reason and nature. That we have a God who made the world, but then does not interfere in it. God has something of a detente policy. He has made the world, but he no longer is going to interfere. The world goes its way, he goes his way. Or as it's been very well put, God created the world like a clock, wound it up, and set it on its way to wind down according to its own natural laws and inherent forces. Deistic Christianity renounced the miracles found in the Bible because God doesn't interfere in the natural operations of his world. More relevantly, and bringing it closer to hand, in the 20th century, in this country, although it was at the end of the 19th century in Germany and elsewhere, in the 20th century in this country, liberalism, or liberal Christianity, came into its heyday. Liberal Christianity shared with deism of an earlier day the idea that Christianity, 
must be made scientifically correct, and that meant editing the Bible. The Bible no longer was the Word of God. The Bible now contained the Word of God. Do you understand the difference? To say that the Bible contains the Word of God does not exclude that the Bible contains a lot of things that are not God's Word as well. Now, sometimes uh, you go to the market and you may find some uh, processed cheese, and it says right on the label, contains natural products. That always worries me when I see things like that because I'm asking myself, what else does it contain? I want it to say, made completely of natural products. Likewise with the Bible. To say it contains, damn the Bible with faint praise. It's to say the Bible is a mixture of good and bad, truth and error. Oh, and who will know how to sort the one from the other? Who will take the scissors and cut out those portions we shouldn't follow? Well, of course, the Bible critic, the theologian who is assuring us that he knows what God says, because, after all, that man is a God to himself, and he knows what couldn't be what God says, and so he sorts it out for us. Now, naturalistic Christianity of the deistic and the liberal varieties dispenses with the resurrection of Jesus Christ because it's not scientifically respectable. And we've all been to funerals, haven't we? It's a sad affair. We all know how cold and lifeless, impotent a cadaver is. To say that some man who had been crucified upon a Roman cross and had been laid in a tomb dead for three days, all of a sudden resuscitated, indeed was raised to life, to this life, it just goes contrary to our natural experience. It's science can't account for that. And if science can't account for it, we know it can't be true, right? course, we'll forget the long history and arrogant claims of science that said things could not be true, and then they later found out, lo and behold, they were. Science, however, playing the part of a god, tells us no resurrections, no miracles, and therefore the Bible is edited in that way. And so we have not only cultural Christianity, but naturalistic Christianity to blame for the attempt to dispense with the resurrection. But there's a third, perhaps an even more insidious variety of Christianity that dispenses with the resurrection. I call it revisionist Christianity. Revisionist because what it does is not openly deny that the resurrection took place, but it revises the meaning of the expression resurrection it alters the nature of the resurrection, or it in one way or another reformulates the context and message of the resurrection so that we don't end up with what the Bible originally said. We find a revision, a reinterpretation of the biblical teaching of the resurrection. Revisionist Christianity, I think, can be seen in four ways. At least four examples come to my mind. First of all, ancient Gnostic heresies that called themselves Christian often taught that Jesus did not really have a body, did not have flesh and blood and bones like the rest of us. Some versions of Gnostic heresies taught that Jesus did not die on a cross. Indeed, some even go so far as to say the Spirit Christ left the man Jesus before he died on the cross because it's impossible that God should have flesh, that he should die on a cross. And of course, impossible then that he should be raised from the dead. 
The problem with Gnostic heresies is their revulsion to flesh, revulsion to matter, revulsion to soul, into which Christ came when he took on a body and was incarnate. Gnostic heresies must deny the resurrection in the same way that they must deny the reality of the incarnation. A second version of revisionist Christianity in our day is called neo-orthodoxy. And if ever there was a, a failure to observe truth and labeling laws, it is here. This is not a new version of orthodoxy. Not at all. This is a new version of liberalism. It is but a, a recycled um, attempt to say what the liberals were saying many years ago. It's not orthodox at all. But it is called neo-orthodoxy. And I guess we must concede to the label at this point. The neo-orthodox tell us that Jesus rose from the dead, but then they reinterpret what that means, that he rose from the dead. They reinterpret the nature of the resurrection as an event that took place not in calendar history, but in an arena that they call supra-history. You all understand that, don't you? No, as a matter of fact, we don't. Most people who read the claims of the neo-orthodox and their denial that the body of Jesus in any ordinary sense rose from the dead find that they're talking about some kind of cuckoo land, some fairy tale, some mythological story of resurrection. And interestingly enough, some neo-orthodox say that's exactly what it is. It is a crucial myth, the resurrection. In the realm of personal meaning, in the realm of personal significance, in some subjective realm that goes beyond reason, time and space and science and math and everything else, in a realm that is mystical and subjective, Christ rose from the dead and therefore validated my existence, gave meaning to my life. So no bodily resurrection in ordinary history, but some mystical, some myth, some subjective idea of a resurrection, dispensing historical account. A third kind of revisionist Christianity is seen in what we can just call straight out mystical or privatized Christianity. You ask me how I know he lives? He lives within my heart. I don't care where his body is. I don't care what happened in that tomb three days after the, res uh, the crucifixion. That is really quite irrelevant. The important thing is that I have a personal walk and a talk with Jesus. He lives within my heart. He rose in that sense. And then, of course, fourthly, many of the Christian cults, they're not Christian, but they are cults that uh, play on the Christian message and distort it. Many of these Christian cults say that he rose, but only spiritually. That isn't to say he rose in my heart, but he rose as a ghost, as a spirit. They all stumble over the fact that uh, Thomas could uh, touch the wounds of Jesus and that he ate fish and uh, bread with his followers. But nevertheless, there are those cultic revisionists who tell us. So my point, through all these illustrations, cultural Christianity, naturalistic Christianity, revisionist Christianity, is that there are some versions of the Christian message that dispense with the bodily erection of Jesus Christ. But very simply and bluntly, my second point this morning is that without the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, every other aspect of the Christian message is invalidated. Without the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, Everything is affected. This is not, you see, some kind of option, some kind of additive, some kind of 
appendix to the main message of Christianity. Take it or leave it. The icing on the cake. You know, some people don't like icing. They'll take that off their cake and just eat the cake part of it, right? And some people think, well, the resurrection is kind of like icing. It's window dressing. It's something that's an additive. You take it or you leave it. No, you don't. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, if we have only hoped in Christ in this life, if we are only a playing a game in our minds, thinking that he rose from the dead, if we have preached that he rose from the dead, but if the dead do not rise, then we are of all men most pitiable. And we need the boldness, we need the honesty to say this morning that cultural Christianity and naturalistic Christianity and revisionist Christianity are all pitiable religions. And if that's all we have to hope in, then let's disband the church, let's sell the hymnals, let's renounce our lease, and let's start doing something that makes some sense. It is pitiable to teach a Christianity devoid of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not just one part of the message. It's the heart and soul of the message. Those of you who have studied world religions or have studied cultic Christianity know as one of the benchmarks of Christian orthodoxy that a religious group must teach the Trinity, must teach it in its orthodox historical form if they have any legitimate claim to be called Christian. And so we take the Trinity, if you will, as a test, as a... Um, something of a benchmark, a watershed, whether we're dealing with Christians or non-Christians at this point, even though they may be religious people. I want to suggest to you this morning that just as importantly, any group that denies the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is not a Christian group. It's a Christianity without Christ, as pitiable as a car without wheels and a picture without painting. Without Christ's bodily resurrection, every aspect of what we understand as Christian theology, the message of the Bible is invalidated. I'm going to give you a series of illustrations here. Christianity begins, at least epistemologically, in terms of our theory of knowledge, our approach to Christianity, especially in the Western world, begins with a consideration of how do we know these things to be true. And the Bible teaches us that we know God based on his own revelation as it's been found in the inspired words of Scripture. But now one of the things we find in the inspired words of Scripture is an account of Christ bodily rising from the dead. In 1 Corinthians 15, 15, Paul says, Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we witnessed of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that the dead are not raised. Paul says, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, we've perjured ourselves. We've sworn in the name of God that he did. And if he didn't, then you can't trust us. We are false witnesses. In 2 Peter 1.16, Peter says, we didn't follow cleverly devised fables. We didn't follow myths when we declared to you the glory of Jesus Christ that has come. The Bible maintains its truth and its accuracy. And if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then don't refer to the Bible anymore. It is preposterous. It is unreliable. You have no sure ground, any warrant for any religious doctrine based on the Bible if it contains error. And if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, it does contain error. And therefore, it's not inspired. It's not the Word of God. And we are cut off epistemologically. In terms of our theory of knowledge, we are cut off from any truth about God. 
Secondly, God's creative power is challenged if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Do you remember how Paul stood before Agrippa and he said, Agrippa, why do you think it a thing impossible with God that he should raise the dead? If God created the heavens and the earth, if God made the human body, if God gives life and breath to all things, if everything looks to God for its origin and for its power, why should it be thought a thing strange that God should raise the dead? It's not at all unlike him. But if Christ didn't rise from the dead, then perhaps God doesn't have that power. He either doesn't have that power or he doesn't have that desire. In a few moments I'll say, if he didn't have that desire, we better question who Jesus was. But right now, we'll just say, if God couldn't raise Jesus from the dead, assuming that he would want to, in terms of the life and ministry and personal qualities of that man, if God couldn't raise him from the dead, what can God do? Can God do any miracle? And after all, if God's creative power is challenged, stop and think about it, it implies that his sovereignty is in question. Because if there are forces in this universe that he cannot control, then he doesn't deserve the name God. The very deity of God, the very fact of God, the very existence of God is called into question if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. I said a moment ago that the failure to have Jesus rise from the dead challenges either God's power or his desire. If God was unwilling to raise Jesus from the dead, then just who was this one who was crucified on a Roman cross? In Acts 2, verses 24 and following, and in Acts 4 as well, Peter makes the point, just because Jesus was the anointed of God, the favored servant of the Father, he could not leave his beloved in the tomb. He could not allow him to see destruction. God had promised through David that his anointed would be raised up. Jesus said on the road to Emmaus, that if we read Moses and the prophets, we read all the scriptures, they testify of the necessity of his resurrection, that it behooved the Messiah to die and then to rise three days later. It is crucial to the very character and identification of this man, Jesus of Nazareth, that he rise from the dead, or he's not God's anointed, he's not the Christ. You stop and think about it. If God does not raise an ordinary man, and God does not raise an even highly favored man, an anointed one sent by him, why would we think that Jesus should qualify as the very Son of God? You see, he doesn't even qualify as the anointed of God. If he's not raised from the dead, how then could he be the Son of God? And so the deity of Christ is called into question. Jesus prophesied his resurrection. He said that if he were raised up on the cross, three days later his claims would be vindicated. That even as Jonah was in the belly of a whale for three days, so he would be in the belly of the earth for three days. But then he would come forth triumphant over death and the one who had brought salvation to God's people. Christ can't be trusted for who he claims to be what the Bible says about him if he didn't rise from the dead. And if Jesus isn't the Son of God, then stop and think about this. And that means that the doctrine of the Trinity is not reliable as well. If Christ is not God, then there are not three persons that are God, three in one. 
And so let's stop and take stock of what we're saying if we deny the bodily resurrection of Christ. We're denying the inspiration of Scripture and therefore God's revelation. We're denying the doctrine of God's creative power, his ability to do miracles. We're denying, therefore, the sovereignty of God. And when you give up the sovereignty of God, you give up his deity. We're denying the anointing of his Son. We're denying the deity of Christ, and therefore denying the very Trinity. Oh, but it's much worse. We can go on from here. In 1 Peter 3.18, we read that it was by means of the Spirit that Jesus was raised from the grave. If he was not raised, then we have reason to question the reality of the life-giving Spirit. In Ephesians 2, verses 5 and 6, Paul tells us that we who were once spiritually dead have been raised with Christ, spiritually. But if Christ has not been raised from the dead, we have reason to doubt that the Holy Spirit has regenerated us and has given us new life. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17, to go back to our text, Paul says, And if Christ hath not been raised, your faith is vain, you are yet in your sins. Romans 4, verse 25 says that he was raised for our justification. If the one who is our sacrificial substitute, if the one who died in our place is yet in the grave, then we have no assurance that we have been vindicated in the sight of God that we are just in his sight, because God didn't even justify his own son. God let him die, and we have no reason to hope in anything beyond that for ourselves. Paul says that in verse 19, if we have only hoped in Christ in this life, we are all men most pitiable. Why? Verse 18 tells you, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have then perished. As Christ perished, those who have died professing Christ as their Savior have perished with him. There is no justification. We are yet in our sins. We are still alienated from God. We are not saved. In Romans 6, verse 11, Paul says, If we then are raised with Christ, we are to lead holy lives. We are to walk in newness of life and not in the oldness of that dead flesh and sin once new. The doctrine of Christ's resurrection is crucial to Christian sanctification. The Bible teaches us that by that same Holy Spirit that gives us new life in regeneration, we are united to Christ in virtue of his death and resurrection. And because he has died into sin and now lives in newness of life, we too have died to sin. We too live in newness of life spiritually in a holy walk before God, no longer giving over our members to unrighteousness. And so if Christ is not raised, there is no power of sanctification in our lives as well. And of course, if Christ is not raised from the dead, then there's no hope that we will be raised from the dead. It has been a persistent doctrine of the Jews, at least the Orthodox Jews, the more or less Orthodox Jews, the Pharisees, what have you, that there will be a future day of resurrection. The Bible teaches there will be a future day of resurrection. The day will come when Jesus will call all into a resurrection of life, some to a resurrection of damnation. And the day of judgment then is predicated upon that future resurrection. If you don't have resurrection, you don't have bodies to judge. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 18, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished if there's no resurrection. Verse 20, but now hath Christ been raised from the dead, the first fruits of them that are asleep. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. 
For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then they that are Christ at his coming. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, then there is no firstfruits. There is no down payment. There is no advance guarantee of the full harvest to come. If Christ didn't rise, we have no reason to assume that there will be a general resurrection at the end of history. And so what's left? For crying, we are pitiable if Christ didn't rise from the dead. We have no inspired scripture. We have no creative power in God. God is not sovereign. Christ is not his divine son and anointed. Christ is not the innocent one of God. There is no trinity. There's no reality to a life-giving spirit. There is no regeneration. There is no justification. There is no sanctification. There is no eschatological hope of a resurrection in a day of judgment. What's left? You see, you can't take the scissors to this book and start just picking a little bit here and there. You start taking the scissors to this book, you might as well throw it all away. Because you take away the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you've gutted Christianity. Oh, but there are two more illustrations, I say, for the end, because then there are going to be these theological Pollyannas that tell us, oh, yeah, that's all true. We can't believe that sort of stuff, but still we must have faith. Still the mystery must continue. Balderdash. What kind of faith? Paul said about it, 1 Corinthians 15, 14, And if Christ hath not been raised, then is our preaching vain. Your faith also is vain. The word vain meaning empty, futile. Ridiculous. Don't start mamby-pambying about have faith in some kind of mysterious beyond and call that Christianity. Paul said if Christ didn't rise from the dead, then faith is empty. It's futile. It's a hoax. Nothing but a game, a facade, and it should be laughed off the face of the earth. Let's not talk about faith. Let's get a little more tough-minded. Let's become a little more scientific. Let's become more pragmatic in our approach. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, there's no reason to have faith in anything beyond what our eyes and ears present to us. And how about the ministry? You know, there have been people who have taken ordination vows for years and years and years, to, saying they will uphold the orthodox creeds of the church and they'll teach what they who have crossed their fingers, as they said that, because they had no intention of proclaiming a miraculous Christianity, at the heart of which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There are men who said we must continue to have a ministry. The church must continue. And remember Paul Stuckey's uh, testimonial song, Hymn, where he says he wandered into a church where the man up there was saying that the one who founded this was dead, but the church must go on. Why? Why must there be a ministry? What do we have to minister to people if we haven't got inspiration, if we haven't got the Trinity, if we haven't got a divine Savior, a power of regeneration, if we are still in our sins, if there's no hope for the future, what is there to minister to people? This is ridiculous. That's what Paul said too. He said, our preaching is vain. Why are you sitting here listening to this? You could be home watching basketball. You could be trimming your lawn. You could be sleeping in. This preaching is vain. It's futile. It's just a facade. It's just a big game. If Christ didn't rise from the dead. Corinthians 15, verse 58. Would you notice that Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, therefore, ask yourself, what's it there for? 
Therefore, based on what I've just been teaching about the reality of Christ's resurrection, based on a Christian theology that makes the resurrection its pivotal point of truth, therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know your labor is not futile, not vain in the Lord. If Christ rose from the dead, then our ministry is substance. Our ministry has hope. Our ministry has power. It's significant that we minister to people because we have a message to minister to people. We have a power to change lives and to correct things that are wrong there. We have a hope for the future. If Christ rose from the dead, then all of our work is meaningful. None of it is in vain. But if Christ didn't rise from the dead, nothing we do counts. It's just a religious fraud, just a big game. And so this Easter morning... I want you to have the bold day of those versions of Christianity, cultural, naturalistic, and revisionist, that deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They are pitiable, religious frauds. And I want you to see that this Easter celebration that we have is not just for this morning, not just even for every Sunday, the Lord's Day, but this celebration is at the heart of our faith. It is indispensable to the inspiration of Scripture to the creative power of God, to His very sovereignty, to the deity of Jesus Christ and the Trinity, to the life-giving reality of the Holy Spirit, to regeneration, justification, sanctification, eschatological glorification. It is essential to any Christian faith and any Christian ministry. Take away the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and you might as well take away the plot from the story. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you this morning joyful that we can encouragement, indeed by your enablement, by your grace, to stand bold in the face of all skeptical challenge and all revisionist attempts to interpret away the truth of your word that we can stand this morning and declare with joy that at the heart of our faith is the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Easter is everything to us as your people. And we give you praise that you did exercise your sovereign power and to, you did vindicate your word and gave a foundation for our new life and did draw us out of the realm of sin into the realm of your justifying mercy and did empower a new walk that is sanctified in your sight and have given us the hope of future victory so that all of our ministry is significant and not in vain. That you did all these things in one miraculous, all-glorious moment when your son Jesus Christ awoke from death and came forth victorious as our Savior from the grave. We're here this morning to praise that risen Savior and to pray, and to worship, and to live our lives in His name. Amen.